ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕਾ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕਾ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਫਤਿਹ ਜੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਸੋ ਜਸਟ ਦੀ ਯੂਜ਼ੂਅਲ ਚੈਕਿੰਗ ਕੈਨ ਯੂ ਹੀਅਰ ਮੀ ਲਾਊਡ ਐਂਡ ਕਲੀਅਰ ਯੈਪ ਕੈਨ ਯੂ ਹੀਅਰ ਮੀ ਲਾਊਡ ਐਂਡ ਕਲੀਅਰ Yes I can hear you loud and clear now if anyone's hearing any Punjabi music in the background I apologize my neighbors are on a binge watch listening to Siddu Musewala and Jamkila as well so celebrating christmas pretty much and that has pissed off quite a lot of Sikhs already quite a lot of our listeners that there are Punjabis in the west who are celebrating christmas all the trying to fit in you know Well, I mean, it really does go sort of show how weak we have been in transferring our values to the current generation and beyond. You know, the Russell Peters joke that his his father thinks that uh, if he does a barbecue, he'll become a Canadian. <laughs> yes, there's that part as well. And it goes to show you how there is this... Uh, this difference in perceptions between you know being a Sikh and then also uh, well I wouldn't say there is any imposition that we need to respect or you know by respect what I mean is 101% indulge in and celebrate the uh, festivals of the countries we are in but it just goes to show you whether you can partake of them or whether you can't partake of them basically there is this line in the sand but uh, well you know our people need something to argue about 24/7 and well even christmas has become such an issue i'm just wondering if our tarkhan community in the west celebrates christmas because jesus was one of them <laughs> yeah he was a carpenter <laughs> <laughs> yep <laughs> it's it's quite intriguing and uh, one of the things which uh, sort of bolstered my uh thought that this episode was really needed was that last night i had the opportunity to watch rambo last blood rambo yeah rambo your christmas movie is violence <laughs> hey i mean for a long time it was die hard but now it seems rambo last blood has replaced it okay and you know without betraying too much of the movie i mean it's rambo one of his family members is killed and he goes on this massive uh, revenge spree against you know the mexican cartels now when this movie was released in 2019 they were heavily criticized um the woke lot actually did try canceling it because they felt that it was a uh, portraying mexicans negatively and there was this a uh, fireback from one of the mexican actors involved in the project because you know most of this movie uh, these guys are talking in um spanish and it's translations as well so the english is quite less in this movie okay and um one of the mexican actors fired back well at the end of the day do you see any non mexicans running what is known officially as a mexican cartel uh 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 no there might be a lot of central americans involved in that but uh it's just a there are, let's say board of directors are all, all mexicans well there you go so if you know stellon decides to portray a reality then why is everyone 
you know, accusing him of being a Trump sympathizer. Uh, well, it's it's a tactics that that works. So why wouldn't they employ that? Why wouldn't they employ it? And you know, I saw you know, like uh, obviously Rambo at the end, it's pretty vicious. He actually tears a man's heart out, rips open people's guts, sets up all the Vietnam era traps. Uh, he's got a bow and arrow. And I was watching it and thinking that you know, I have full sympathy for the man. And it's amazing that you know, good people. When we talk about good people, good people need to do bad things for the greater good. Now, killing someone is obviously a bad thing, but you know, in the movie, they make it pretty prescient that he has no other option other than take the law in his own hands. I think it's a uh, the movie Patriot, uh, Mel Gibson. Yep, he's against fighting the British. Uh, well, British, yeah, redcoat. Yep. But then the situation tells him then this way that he becomes a, a vicious fighter. He actually refuses to register for the militia. Yep, and this might Did sound very it? yep. This might sound very weird and strange to the listeners, but we are not talking about movies per se for their own sake, but basically they're a part of the human story which do reflect the human condition. They do, yep, to a large extent. So, yep, so all this viciousness, all this violence, it's always been a part of the human psyche, the human condition. I mean, I know religion has tried tempering it, but then you look at Sikhi, and Sikhi, we can say it's a case of belief trying to channel it well, not trying, but actually orienting it, you know, channeling it towards productive measures and productive takes. You know, rather than letting it just, you know, be directionless. And Sikhi, we don't have violence for violence' sake, but violence for achieving and acquiring goals, really. Mm, yeah. And I do believe it starts from, you know, Guru Nanak's Akkana George, Chopena George, Jorna Mangana Denna George Shabad. Obviously, we have discussed this until the cows come home that, you know, these Shabbats need to be translated without the uh, Babaji lenses and all this uh, bloody pseudo, you know, all this pseudo-academic decolonization rubbish. And on the cusp of it, if you look at it, I have always refrained from calling, you know, the Khalsa Guru Gobind Singh Ji's creation because I believe that the ideological foundations for it were laid down by Guru Nanak. I think if you call it that way, then it lays the ground, that's a, lays the foundation for the debate that the gurus have actually weird off the Bhakti movement. Right, which we know isn't the truth because the Bhakti movement really had nothing to do with Sikhi. Even if you look at the Gurbani of the Bhakts, you know, they're seeped hardcore into the Bhakti movement even though they do criticize it at times, but Guru Nanak is actually entering into a dialogue with them and saying, well, wait a second, this is not reality. Here is what reality is. This is why in the structure of the Guru Granth Sahib, the uh, Gurbani of the Gurus precedes that of the Bhakts. Yep, yep. I, I think this is the exact question that Aurangzeb asked the Guru Sahib, that you were, you were a people who were doing religious things and now you're fighting like a warrior. Yep, yep. And... Uh, 
as Dr. Balwan Singh Tilo did recount when Samarth Ramdas came to visit Guru Hargobind, he made this sarcastic comment that uh, Guru Nanak was a fakir, and Guru Hargobind Sahibji shot back that Guru Nanak was that type of a fakir who left the ways of the world, but not the world itself. And this stance justifies the warrior essence of Sikhi. You know, because that warrior ethos was laid down by Guru Nanak. I mean, for more on this, you can, the listeners and anyone else, they can read the Sikh Renaissance on Substack. That's where we actually do cover all this in depth. However, moving on, the uh, discussion for today is how can we truly and in a Sikh way honor the Shahids, uh, particularly the uh, martyrs Baba Jeet Singh Ji, Baba Jujar Singh Ji, Baba Zoravar Singh Ji, Baba Fateh Singh Ji and Mata Gujri Ji, and all the other Shahids who died during December in 1704. Hmm. Right, so to give a bit of a background to this, so December 1704, Guru Gobind Singh Ji takes the decision that we will depart from Anandapur Sahib. Yep. It's not a decision taken lightly. I mean, one of the things we need to remember is, you know, even Anmol Singh Rode pointed this out in the uh, Nehang episode we did, Fraternity of Immortals and the uh, myth of Marathas rebuilding their bar is that, you know, Sikhs have had this uh, affliction, you know, rubbing off on them now for a near century that history is too sacrosanct to be, you know, inquired into fully, right? They do have this kind of feeling, some of them, yeah, true. Now, Guru Gobind Singh Ji departing from Anandapur, you know, evacuating Anandapur, it's taken to mean that it is a Kal Hukam, but has anyone considered what Guru Gobind Singh Ji's future plan was, why he actually evacuated Anandapur. He wasn't going to give up fighting. That's established. Uh, okay. What do you think was the reason the Gurus have chose not to make a last stand in Anandapur? What I personally believe is that, you know, all the great generals and warriors in history and we are not saying that Guru Gobind Singh Ji was a common man. What we are saying is that there are certain principles in all realms of human action established by, you know, Wahiguru himself, the creator himself, which, you know, the most successful of us realize, recognize, and implement. And one such principle in the field of war is that you need an ending strategy. How things are going to end, you should be able to envision them in the future. And as far as Guru Gobind Singh Ji is concerned, he can see that at Anandapur, the Sikhs are sitting ducks, right? Yeah, under siege. Under siege. And, you know, the Sikh way of war so far, I mean, if you look at the earlier battles, they have been based on Sikh mobility rather than Sikh staticness, right? So bands of Sikhs, cells of Sikhs operating far and wide have netted them quite a lot of, you know, successes to the point that even in pitched battles, they've pretty much reduced the enemy before beginning to fight them. So they have worn over the enemy psychologically before, you know, beginning to fight them in the, you know, field of combat physically. So for the Sikhs to be pinned down as sitting ducks, you know, the end strategy here could have been just attrition that, you know, 
the Guru and the Sikhs would have been worn down and then slaughtered anyway, like we know happened with Baba Banda Singh after Vinod Singh betrayed him. Mm-hmm. So to me, it seems that the plan was, because we haven't really studied so far into it in depth, is that the Guru evacuates Anandapur and decides that the best way now to resume this is to go onto the open plains of Punjab and cite, resurrect, uh, and cite you know, uh, rebellion there and from there make his way out of the Punjab and then from there catch the Mughals in a pincer movement. So it's a prolonged strategy where the Mughals would be hit in the open plains where all the fertile uh, crown lands were, which actually fed the treasury at Delhi. I think uh, we, we as Sikhs have this terrible shortcoming that uh, we see Guru Sahib through the lens of religiosity, not as a general. Mm, mm, mm. Yep, that's there right. There is a need to do that, because he fought battles, yeah? Well, like, yes. Won all of them. But to understand his military mind, we must do that. We have to, I mean, if you look at it, like, this was, uh, can you please repeat that? We must try to understand our Guru's military mind. We have to, I mean, if you look at J.D. Cunningham, this was what Cunningham always believed. Guru Gobind Singh Ji at Nandir sending Baba Banda Singh and all these other Singhs back to the Punjab. They were to go there quite clandestinely and, you know, cause chaos. And then he would have come from another direction and caught the Mughals in a pincer movement. Mm-hmm. Right? So there was a similar plan going on at Anandapur when the Guru decided to, you know, depart. Now, obviously, one thing which we need to know is that have you heard of the Void strategy? Uh, no. Okay. So... Let's just take a bit of a detour in another part of history. Now, you know, the Russians knew that Napoleon was an aggressive little bastard, right? He was smart and aggressive. Mm-hmm. People like Aurangzeb and Napoleon, who we can say are, you know, smartly aggressive rather than aggressively smart, they always require something to lash out at something to hit it, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you know, John Keegan argues that a military is a reflection of the society from which it arises, but at the same time, the military reflects the uh, the temperance of the uh, commander who commands it. You know, there is some psychological, you know, elements of the commander which filter down to the lowest ranks and the highest ranks under the commander. Would you agree with that assessment? Yeah. So what happens is that when you have these uh, generals like Aurangzeb, Vazir Khan, uh, Napoleon, you know, so these generals always need something to lash out at something to hit it. As soldiers, they can't deal with the tension of knowing there is an attack which is going to come, but never being able to fully you know, witnessed that attack coming. So, you know, for example, Napoleon knew that the Russians were going to attack him, but they always managed to foil him at the last minute. So they really held out this leer, we're going to attack you, you little French bastard. But they always moved out of the way. And basically what happened was he had all this pent-up tension in, in him that, you know, why aren't they attacking? Why aren't they fighting me? And that made him lose his mind enough that, you know, at the end, Napoleon took, I believe, over 495,000 French soldiers to uh, Russia 
but only 25,000 managed to make their way back to Paris. Oh, that was a terrible, terrible loss, yeah. The yep. Russians just uh, retreated. That was a, their best strategy. Yeah, they just kept on retreating ahead of him. And uh, this is called the void strategy. So what really happens in this is that the target lose the enemy. So the target presents themselves as bait, but refuses to engage the enemy until the enemy is worn out. And that's what the Guru was doing here, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Now, logically piecing together what happens next is they, you know, the Guru departs. And we do know that the uh, family and other prominent Sikhs are divided. You know, it's decided that, you know, some members of and conceal themselves outside Punjab. Some will be in the Punjab. Some will be here. Some will be there. So there is this uh, strategic, you know, pattern working out, which we as Sikhs are still to study. However, on the biggest side, Guru Gobind Singh Ji, uh, Baba Jeet Singh Ji, who is his eldest son, who is 15 years old now, Chandra Sen Senapati in the Shri Gursoba also says that Baba Jeet Singh had another name, which was a regal title which was Ranjit, because Baba Jeet Singh won quite a lot of battles. He was always called Ranajit, the one who wins in battle. So whenever Baba Jeet Singh and his, uh, you know, special squad of handpicked Khalsa warriors marched out, people would shout, there goes Ranajit, there goes Ranajit. So Baba Jeet Singh is 15 years old at the time. Yeah. So there is the Guru his own personal bodyguard, his own uh, platoon, which is augmented by Baba Jeet Singh and his platoon. Then there comes Baba Jajar Singh, who is the Guru's second eldest son. He's 12 years old, and he seems to be in the capability of a, you know, Praetorian guard for his father. Hmm. So that's him. Then comes the Guru's uh, mother, uh, Mata Gujarkorji. She's uh, quite old but still hale and hearty, fit, armed as well. And she takes Baba Zoravar Singh Ji, who is the Guru's third eldest son. Now, there is that uh, bit of a question on the age of Baba Zoravar Singh Ji. Some say he was eight, others say he was ten. So, I mean, such a regularity is allowed in history. So I personally believe that Baba Zoravar Singh Ji was ten. So there is Baba Zoravar Singh Ji, and then there is the youngest son, who is Baba Fateh Singh Ji. And Baba Fateh Singh Ji, again, there is a bit of irregularity over this birth as well. I would say that he was anywhere from five to six years old at the time. Yeah, usually it says six. Six, yeah, we can, yeah, we can accept that as well. So now what happens is in December 1704, the Guru decides that, you know, they're going to leave Anandapur. There is a new plan in the making. So before they leave, I mean, he's baiting the enemy. And the enemy falls into this trap because, you know, in any battle, whether it's political, social, or military, you know how to turn even defeat into victory? Well, I don't, but my guru did. <laughs> One of the uh, strategies you can use is take the moral high ground. Oh, in that way. Yeah, of course. We're pretty Machiavellian, but 
like I said, there are principles in the field of human activity decided, uh, designed by God himself, and these principles usually are quite synonymous and similar across the ages. So the guru knows that, you know, he has a lot of sport, but he makes it known far and wide what the uh, enemy does is that Aurangzeb sends a personal oath on the Quran, which we know is Al-Takiya, which is a religious deception, and the guru knows this as well because in Islamism, they do allow, uh, you know, the faithful Muslims to lie to non-Muslims to either get them to convert or to finish them off. So he sends the Guru a Quran on which he has written that I swear that I will not harm you if you leave Anandapur. And the Hindu Rajput kings send him this, you know, cow made out of flour in the hands of a Brahmin basically saying that we swear on the cow we won't harm you if you leave Anandapur. And the Guru is, you know, sitting there in his court after the messengers depart. He's shaking his head. He's got this laughter on his face and he bursts out laughing. And, you know, the Sikhs are looking at him. These are hard times. They're starved. They're under siege, but they're still giving it their all for the Guru. And they ask him that, you know, your holiness was funny. And the Guru tells them, does any of you here believe we should be trusting these people? Not a chance. Not a chance. So they decide to make this strategy. So what it is said is done first is they, you know, get all these uh, oxes, bulls, and load them up with rubbish, but they put the rubbish in rich clothing. So when these oxen are let out, now the enemy knows that there is a range from another side where the Sikhs will be watching. They let those animals pass the range, and then they fall upon those animals anyhow. So there are all these, you know, decoy distractions sent out by the guru so some sinks are sent out and they report back that you know we are surrounded now we are going to fight and it seems that the guru divides his uh forces into four armies so there is one cohort which goes with him and his family and there are non-combatants here as well another and this is actually under uh i believe this one might be under actually by Jeevan Singh Sheet's wife. I can't remember her name. She's actually a commander. She leads one cohort of the army. They actually fight to the death, right? Hmm. Another one, I believe, is actually under one of the Guru's cousins. There's a hill near Chamkor where they strategically take the high ground, but they end up fighting to the death down there as well. And then another part of this army, another cohort, is under Bajatar Singh Ji and Pai Uday Singh Ji, and they also fall fighting. So the cohort, which is finally left, which survives, is the Guru's own. And, you know, this is the one which reaches Sarsa. Now, there is a massive storm. The river has, you know, broken its banks. Everyone is looking around. Sinks are doing Asadivar, you know, while they're working really hard, getting ready to cross over. And the Guru is, you know, informed that, you know, Baba Jeet Singh has just returned with few remainders from, you know, by Bajitra Singh and by Uday Singh's divisions. The survivors, the Mughals and the Rajputs have actually ambushed them. They're attacking them and the Guru decides, well, there is nothing for it. Let's go to the Sarsa and cross. Hmm. So a massive decision, lots of thunder, lots of water, and many drown. 
many make it to the other side, but everyone is separated from everyone else. Hmm. So the accounts we have so far, the authenticated accounts, I know there is one account by uh, Duna Singhandoria. This was from manuscript number 6045, which was destroyed in Blue Star. Now, we do have pictures and other copies of this. Duna Singhandoria does say that, you know, the Guru's family was together and they finally divided at Jamkor, which I believe is what he actually says. But I'm not really sure how authentic this account is that we can accept its, you know, viability straight away. If you know what I mean, I don't really accept this account as being authentic unless some oh, historian comes and confirms that what it says is the truth. However, what the majority of primary accounts, contemporary accounts state is that the family is divided as they come out of the Sarsa. So the Guru and maybe 41 to 45 men from his division, including the two elder Sahib Jades are on his side. But Mata Gujri and the two youngers are swept away somewhere else. Hmm. So what happens is that now, <clears throat> obviously, we have leftist historians like Audrey Trushke and, you know, Islamist Dava givers who uh, allege that there is no authenticity to Sikh manuscripts and Sikhs are liars, right? That there was never any persecution of Sikhs in the name of religion. Well, totally expected. And, you know, Sardar Inderjeet Singh pointed out that as the uh, right-wing backlash in the West increases, we can expect more such attacks on Sikh history, not from the right-wing itself, but from the people it targets. Right. Anyhow, the Akam-i-Alamgiri by Mirza Niyatullah Khan. Yes, I do believe this might be Mirza Niyatullah Khan or another author. Yeah, Akami Alamgiri. Basically, yes, or orders of Aurangzeb Alamgir. So these are compiled 1703 to 1707. So the, the author was a primary eyewitness to what happened at Jamkor. So this is what he writes. So this letter confirms the Battle of Jamkor and what happened next. So... It's addressed to Vazir Khan, and it seems Vazir Khan had a commander who wrote a letter to this writer of Akami Alamgiri. And so the uh, author of Akami Alamgiri is writing back to Vazir Khan that, you know, the address's letter has been received. And it does contain the news of the encampment of Gobind, the Nanak devotee, at 12 Kuras from Sarhand. So Kura was a unit of measurement at the time. And that commander reports that 700 cavalry with some artillery was sent to capture Gobind. Gobind was taking refuge in the house of the Zamindar of the village of Jamkor. And that in the ensuing battle, his two sons and other companions were killed. And now the English translation makes out that one son and his mother were captured at the spot. But really what it is is that Yes, we have received other confirmation that one son and Gobind's mother have been captured as well. One son. Uh, this seems to have been a mistake on their part because there were actually two sons, but 
even now we are not really sure as to the circumstances of that capture. We do know that Gangu betrayed them, but you know, it seems to be more or less a case that this was maybe a mistake by the clerk who actually wrote this letter. Or what it seems to me is that Vazir Khan was obviously at Chamkor. So at Chamkor, the Hindu Rajput Pahari Raja, Vazir Khan, Sher Khan of Malair Kotla and his brother Nahar Khan, and some of Aurangzeb's own crack troops attacked the Guru, right? Yeah. So what happens is that the news of the capture of the younger Saib Jadis and Mata Gujri is brought to Vazir Khan. He doesn't really have it on first-hand account. He's probably received it on a second-hand authority. And somewhere down there in translation, the number of sons has been reduced from two to one. Hmm. But what it does say now, this is the interesting part, since His Excellency's petition comprising an account of these matters has already been seen by the Emperor and His Highness Mirza Ali Yarbek has already conveyed the details to His Majesty. The contents of the letter now received have not been conveyed to His Majesty. So that does confirm that Vazir Khan's initial report was sent to Aurangzeb, who was quite conversant with what was happening at Chamkor. Hmm. Right, so... What it really is that as the Sikhs come out of Sarsa, now they ask the Guru what they will do and the Guru takes stock of the situation and says we will go to Jamkor. So it seems that historically there is concurrence that the Sikhs had fought one battle at Jamkor in the pre-Khalsa days and won. And the Zamindar, there was a Sikh as well, a Sahedtari. Hmm. So Sahajitari is one who has kept his case but hasn't taken Amrith yet. So that also means that uh, Guru Sahib had an exit plan. It wasn't just, he wasn't just escaping from, from Anandapur. He had a proper plan. Yes, he had a proper plan. And what actually happens is that they go to this Chaudhary and the Chaudhary decides, okay, you need to come into my house. Now, this is a big house. It's almost like an ancient fortress, a Haveli or a Gari. And what happens is that they go inside and they decide to rest. And Pai Singh does ask that, you know, can I go look for the younger Sajjadis? And the Guru tells him, well, you know, at the end of the day, it's just going to be a waste of time. And men, I can't get these others killed for my own sons. Hmm. What a statement. Yep, what a statement. And now, Akami Alamgiri does mention that 700, you know, soldiers and a detachment of artillery were sent to capture the Guru. Now, it seems that the military force which was sent was quite substantial. And initially, when they say that it was thus luck, how much would thus luck actually translate to in English? A million. Yeah, it wasn't exactly a million. But it seems there was a comparative metaphor here that for, you know, 40 to 45 famished men who were wounded from previous fighting and tired, any force which was sent against them was obviously going to be as strong as a million while they were reduced in strength rather than it being a million straight away. No, it's, it's logistically impossible. It is logistically impossible at the time because there is no record of such a substantial body of men moving into the Punjab at the time. But what it really was, was that it seems that 
just about the entire Punjab garrison was arrayed against the Guru, Sirhand and Lahore being the two prominent. It's logistically impossible even today. Yep, so we are probably talking that in total 500,000 men were after the Guru, but what happened at Chamkor is we are talking probably somewhere close to 5,000 or less, but definitely more than 500 besieged him again. So, okay, there are two numbers here. The total number yep. of soldiers who were on the lookout for Guru Sahib and his family. Yep. And the total number of enemy soldiers who were actually there on the ground in that final battle. Yeah, yeah. So two different conceptive numbers. Yeah. So what happens now is that if this account is to be trusted, so what we do come to next is there's a general concurrence what happened next. And what it seems is that initially speaking, the besiegers at Chumkor realized that the artillery was going to be useless. And why is that so? From the descriptions we have from these primary sources, it seems that the Haveli itself had a singular route and it was surrounded by a forest. Hmm. So firing cannons into the thicket of trees could have created a obstacle for the, you know, infantry, which was moving in and the cavalry to kill the Sikhs. Uh, okay, so if I was surrounded by thick forest, and if you, okay, have you ever seen Punjabi forests? Unfortunately, no, <laughs> I don't think many people have. Uh, if you see any wasteland that's you know, been abandoned for, let's, let's say, 30, 40 years, then the natural vegetation grows back there, yeah? Yep. It's largely thorny bushes, and they are thick. They're not too tall. Yep. The visibility is no more than 50 feet. So pretty much they're damned from the start, anyone who wants to invade in such a situation. Yep, and it's very easy to escape through them. Yep. And it seems what's actually happened here is that there is either two things down here is that one, there is actually a secret way which is outside the Haveli, but the Sikhs are unable to get there. Or two, they discover it later. But what actually happens is that initially the Mughals decide that, well, you know, some of us will go single file into the thicket and try getting into the Haveli. And this is what happens. So when they come rushing in, even though they're single file, the guru who's at the uh, top of the Haveli, he orders his uh, Sikhs who have arrows, quoits, you know, chakras and guns to start firing at them straight away. Hmm. They drop a considerable few. And I do believe in the Zafar Nama, the guru mentions that one of Aurangzeb's, you know, primary commanders came to challenge him and he shot an arrow right through his stomach and pinned him to the ground. And another warrior who challenged him, the guru said, fine, then I'll come out with my dagger and let's see what happens with you and your sword. He ran away as well. And uh, Sher Khan's brother, Nahar Khan, tried climbing onto the uh, parapets of the Haveli, but the guru slit his throat and kicked him off straight away. Hmm. So the Guru and a select few are defending the top while the others are actually, you know, 
taking up sniper encampments and entrenchments inside the Haveli to keep away the Mughals. So it's a proper special forces mission like that? Yes, very regimented and almost clockwork. Hmm. You need to remember that the Sikhs now who are left with the Guru, you know, Baba Jeet Singh, Baba Jujar Singh, the Panjapiare, uh, three of them, by Himmat Singh, Mokam Singh, and Saib Singh would actually die fighting here. By Kirpal Singh, who became a Sikh from, you know, Kirpal Chand, Pandit. By uh, Sangat Singh, by Jeevan Singh. These were like the uh, special forces division of the Khalsa forces at the time. Hmm. So, what happens next is the combat ensues. And the Sikhs find their projectiles running out. And they decide that five of us can exit at one time and keep them at bay. But it would be suicide to come back inside anyhow. So five of them would go out and die to push the Mughals back. Hmm. The goal is that the single file route which they've taken to come in has to be blocked at quite a considerable distance, so they have to be pushed back quite a lot of the way back, actually, so the others can make good their escape. Do you think Sikhs of today have actually got any understanding of what the battlefield looked like? No, I don't believe they've got any understanding. doesn't seem to be the case. Mm. Yeah, okay. Go on. So then the battle starts, five Singhs go out, they fall fighting. Then, you know, obviously Baba Jeet Singh asks permission, the Guru sends him. Baba Jujar Singh asks permission, the Guru sends him. And you need to consider how much of a great father he was that he was ready to sacrifice his sons for Guru Nanak's Khalsa. Mm. Right. And obviously what the Guru does before the battle starts is that he calls over Pai Sangat Singh, puts his kalgi on his head and bows to him and says that the Guru Granth has the Shabbat Guru as Guru since Guru Nanak's time. But now he's also making the Panth Guru because as long as the Panth stays conversant with the Granth's ideology, it will be Guru as well. It will have the political and sovereign authority of the Guru. Hmm. Anyhow, they die fighting down there and Guru Gobind Singh Ji is requested by the, you know, surviving Sikhs to depart and he sees that the way is open and he actually departs. But before he does, he takes off his shoes because his, you know, Sikhs who are dead, he doesn't want to step on their heads. And at the same time, they say that Pai Dea Singh wanted to put a sheet of white on the Saibjada's bodies. And the Guru refused, saying that all the other Sikhs who have died, you need to cremate their bodies first before, you know, looking after my sons. What I've heard is, as a kid, what I've, what I've heard is the Gurus have didn't even look at them, he just walked past them. Yep, just walked past them. And <clears throat> what happens next is that the Guru manages to get away, but the Sikhs inside, Sangat Singh is dressed as the Guru. Hmm. So he, by Jeevan Singh, their father-in-law, I believe, and their brother-in-laws, and some of their cousins, they die fighting. And the Mughals realized that they were just a last-minute distraction. The Guru is gone. Hmm. 
Now, we do know what happens after that, that the Guru gets out of Machiwara. He prepares again for his forces and resumes the battle. He's not duly concerned about what happened to his children. Basically, he says they lived for Guru Nanak's ideals. They never betrayed them. I can, you know, sleep well knowing that they gave their lives for their principles. They didn't betray them. Yeah. Right. So <clears throat> now what happens to the younger Saib Jadis? And, you know, it's interesting that even Kesar Singh Shibu confirms this is that they come onto another side of the Sarsa with their grandmother. Initially, they're actually uh, sheltered by a fisherman named Kamo. And after that, uh, it seems that this uh, Hindu Brahmin Gangu, who was once associated with the Guru's court, takes them to his village. And down there, when he sees that they have some you know, money left over and hears about their war on their head, he betrays them to the Mughals. Okay. Right. So, Gangu, if I remember correctly, those whole villages, that whole area is destroyed by Banda Singh later on. Yeah, later on this. Yeah. Wasn't Pretty Gangu much. aware of the, of the Paichara that we professed? Uh, <laughs> I think the Paichara is coming these times. Oh, so it's a recent invention then? Oh, pretty much. I mean, if you can't prove your Paichara in the first place, why should we trust you? Invention or innovation? Possibly infiltration. Subversion, okay, different different things, yeah. Yep. He betrays the side judges. Now the side judges are taken to court. So let's remember the rages. We're talking what ten and six. Mm-hmm. And Vazir Khan decides that he's going to imprison them in the cold tower. Now this is where he sleeps in the summers. It's quite big, it has concrete walls, and in the winter it's freezing. And they're stripped off of the, all of their warm clothes just to torture them in the night. Hmm. So they huddle next to their grandmother. They're looking out of the tower. Sehejitari Sek by Moti Mera comes and gives them some milk. He later is killed alongside his family for this. Not just killed, executed in the most brutal way. How was he executed? Uh, you know what's a kolu? Uh, no, I'm sorry, I don't. It's a, it's like a, a machine that's used to extract oil from, let's say, seeds or vegetables, vegetable seeds. Yep. So his whole family was pushed through that. Right, and I believe this was the same fate which befell Todermal. Uh, uh, he was crushed alive, and his entire family was crushed alive by that oil extracting machine. Yeah. Right. So I'm, these I'm, were... I'm not too yeah. sure about uh, what what happened to Todermal, but I have heard some accounts that by Motiram was uh, actually a Jain, not a Hindu, to begin with. Not really sure what it was, but look now we can focus on the particulars of the battle, but we don't want to do that because that would be you know defeating the main purpose. And basically what happens to the Saib Jadis is they're called into Vazir Khan's court. He tries convincing them to convert to Islam. They defeat his greatest theologians in debate. Shibur tells us that the uh, uh, major domo, Suchananda, who's a Hindu, 
he and Sykes further reaction against them, calling them the sons of serpents. So other than Sher Khan of uh, Maler Kotla, because Sher Khan thinks that, you know, Guru Gobind Singh Ji's life, he might come back for revenge. So like a coward, he decides that, oh, well, you know what, I'll just do this little drama of saying, let's not kill the kids. But then he walks out of the court anyway. So the children are sent back to their grandmother and she, you know, tells them to strengthen themselves. And the fatwa based on Sharia is given that they need to be killed. Hmm. And, okay, just a side note. Yep. What, what happened to Shere Khan afterwards? Shere Khan was actually killed in battle by the Sikhs because he tried raping a Sikh woman. Ah, so this part of history we conveniently choose to forget. Yeah, choose to forget. I mean, Banda Singh Badr sacked uh, Maler Kotla. I do believe Nawab Kapoor Singh sent Sikhs to destroy it. And even just a single Walya sacked it for sporting Abdali during the Vadakalukara. These uh, Maler Kotlians shut their doors in the faces of the Sikhs during the Vadakalukara and even actually invited some Sikhs inside their houses and turned them over to Abdali. Mm, so no Pajara here too, no? No, no, no Pajara here as well. Here as well, no Pajara. No Pajara. So the Saib Jadis, the younger Saib Jadis, refused to convert to Islam. Wazir Khan tells them, hey, look at the sky. You will be killed, your bodies will be here, and your pieces will be taken by all those birds flying high. And they tell him, well, you know how high those birds fly? That's how high the Sikh Nishan Saibs will fly here one day, and that prophecy has come true. May Wazir Khan the bastard burn in whichever hell his God has put him in, that is, even if his God exists. Anyhow, moving on from there, the Saib Jadis are pricked alive. But what happens is that the wall falls down, and then the executioners sit on their bodies and slit their throats. Yep. And as for Mata Gujri, yep. And as for Mata Gujri, they grab her and throw her off the top of the tower, and she dies like that. What the village Gyani told me that Mata Gujri actually committed suicide. Do you really believe that a woman whose father-in-law fought against the Mughals, whose husband fought against them and sacrificed himself? whose son fought against them and sacrificed himself, would actually kill herself. I'm more likely to believe that fat, old, grumpy Babaji than you. <laughs> yeah, fat old Babaji needs a dung at this stage then. Well, that's what he told me. That's what he told every, single, every other single kid in the village. Is he still alive? Nope. But he did went oh, to the yeah. UK and settled there. <laughs> so he must have told at least the same thing to kids in the UK as well see don't you think the suicide theory becomes a bit problematic well for me it's 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 totally bogus it's not just problematic okay why do you think it's totally bogus because suicide makes no sense. We know that Mata Gujarat was a very, very strong woman. Very strong woman. And at the end of your life, you, you, you don't change like that. You're old, your, your sons have been called. Okay, if you even think about it, was she aware that her other two grandchildren were dead? 
Yeah, she was. Uh, oh, no, I don't believe she was a very, but she would have accepted it somehow in her mind. Well, actually, come to think about it, I'm sure they would have told them straight away that your, you know, two elder brothers are dead. Well, they, they would have lied anyhow. There, no, there was no point believing them. But at that moment, Guru Gobind Singh was alive. They did try convincing the children he was dead, but the children fired back that all this, you know, increased security around Sirhand and the fact they had long faces indicated their father had managed to, you know, evade capture again. Yeah, so at least she had at least one hope left to live? Yep. Yeah, so why? She must have See, seen numerous, numerous Sikhs dying in battle. And if you think she yep. differentiated between those Sikhs and her grandchildren, then you were plain wrong. See, this is how I see it at the moment, is that there are two theories. The first one is she left her body, like she made her soul fly away. That's the first thing which the Gyanis have fed to us. That is impossible. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. The second one about committing suicide by jumping off the tower or even dying of shock. So the second suicide theory ignores that the Mughals had them under heavy guard and would have stopped any attempts at suicide. Do you think she might have passed away because of the cold? Or maybe because of the injuries she had? I don't think they would have kept her alive for long to die like that. Hmm. Right. Rather than make her a martyr, they decided to kill her straight away. All of these are topics of research and nobody, nobody has done any research on this. To put a conclusion here, we are talking maybe within five to six days, the Guru lost all his family. Yes. But he still did not grieve for them or feel that he had been dealt a grievous blow in life. I'm going to give you an example. It's going to be an extreme example, but totally unrelated directly, but it makes sense. Well, this is an extreme episode. Yeah, okay. You know what happened to Stalin's son? Uh, no. He was captured by the Nazis. Yep. He tried to commit suicide to, to avoid capture, but he, he couldn't do it. Yep. And he, they offered Stalin, okay, we, you know, Give us what we want, or otherwise we'll kill you. Son, say, yeah, do it. And they did. Yep. So when, well, Stalin was a very, very bad man. That's why I told you it's an extreme, extreme example. Yep. But he was responsible for the safety and security. So as, or to show show any weakness at all. Exactly, exactly. There's no other such example that I can think of, so that's why I have to talk about Stalin here. The thing is that if you're really that committed to your ideals, to your beliefs, to your principles, the question is not of whether you will sacrifice yourself and your loved ones, but it's more what will you not sacrifice to achieve your aims? 
how do you define sacrifice? I would say that sacrifice really, okay, let's just take this into consideration. Sacrifice is the act of accepting the cost of what you're doing. But it isn't an aim. Is sacrifice doing the right thing? In certain cases, it can be. Doing what out to be done? I beg your pardon? Is sacrifice doing what needs to be done? What out to be done? In a way, yes. Well, we can't settle on a proper definition, but it is the way it is. Yep. So there were sacrifices made every single day. Yep. Especially for those six or seven days. Yep. If we talk about the prelude here, can you tell me yep. what what happened between the year 1700 and 1704? We do know that the Guru was preparing for the final battle. The Sikhs were building up their forces. Strategies were lay, being laid out for the future. Uh, Sikh missionaries were converting thousands to Sikhi. So, you know, the Guru was at peace with himself that obviously the future is going to be quite grim, quite brutal. He would have to adapt to the circumstances yeah. <clears throat> rather than, you know, ask the circumstances to adapt to his wills. If Anandpur could withstand months of siege against the Mughal army, how strongly yep. defended, designed, and managed was it? Oh, there you go. If every single day for many, many months, in the hot summers, in the winters, in the rains, especially back in the day, was so heavily forested, there were hills all around. Yep. When Mughal spies, Mughal infiltrators would have tried, you know, every single day, multiple times, let's say, to, to break in and the Sikhs managed to keep them out. Can you imagine militarily how efficient that system was? Yep. And have we been able to understand it? No, no. We haven't even scratched the surface. We don't even know there's a surface to scratch. <laughs> exactly. We're more concerned about, uh, you know, just... I would say it's a mock. Walk through cold water, trying to remember Sabjadas. See, that's the main thrust of them. If you want to honor the Sabjadas today, what are you going to do? Are you going to run around with a little uh, placard shouting, defund the police or I spot BLM, while ignoring the fact that BLM is not speaking up for black victims of black mass shootings? Well, the, <clears throat> since we talked about Sikh celebrating Christmas, so I think uh, they're just following the trends, the social trends, especially the young kids. They are, you know, they can be influenced very easily. If some 100%. guy said, if some guy goes to them and say that this is injustice, your guru would have stood for it. Or stood stood against this injustice, yeah. Yep. Do you think those those kids would just stay at home? What do you think? I I, I think they'd be 
spending the time, their money, their resources, and maybe even skipping class to attend those protests or whatever they call them. Because we, yep. yeah, because we are Sikhs, we stand against injustice everywhere. So we must stand against injustice and we must support this movement without even understanding it. Do you know that the Islamists at the time and the caste Hindus used to say that the Guru's disbelief in their practices was a form of oppression? Well, they had their own justifications, yeah. Right. So yeah. for these guys today to say they're fighting against oppression, have they actually seen whether they're fighting against oppression or creating a new form of oppression? Bro, how difficult is it to convince a 19-year-old that uh, the world is in a, in a certain way? Not much. I have seen people justifying crimes. Oh, it's because systematic, 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 uh, what they call discrimination. Mm -hmm. Yes, no, you're pointing a gun at me and robbing me. It's just two people here. You're robbing me. There's, there's nothing systematic here. Exactly. Yeah, but they have the justifications and they have read through them. They have been told. Well, sorry, not told, indoctrinated. And there's justification for everything. It's the same thing that uh, uh, there was like a, uh, hate crimes against people of Asian origin in America. And somehow yeah. that was because of white supremacy. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. But justification for everything. So no doubt back in those days, they must have their justifications for opposing Guru Sahib. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The way to honor those martyrs today, what do you think is the best way? Very first thing to understand who they were, why yep. they did what they did, and what we need now, today, in line with Sikhi. Right. Or you can simply, uh, you know, walk through cold water, saying "Wagru, Wagru, Wagru." Spend twenty minutes in there, and there, yeah, that's done. Sleep on the floor. Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, I missed that one. That, that that's really, really important. You must sleep on the floor for like a week or so. Then afterwards, drink heavily on the New Year's. Yep, you should deny that you don't need kiss. And you should also deny that uh, there's no loyalty in Sikhi. Right. So this modern Sikhi they have isn't that authentic Sikhi, is it? No, we have a close of it, man. Not even that. For me, the issue is like uh, people have too much to lose, and now they are they are inventing their own definitions, their own descriptions. And, and, and the, yeah, at the end of the day, they simply say, "Well, it's all in your heart." Yep. What do you say? It's their own excuses they're inventing. That's what it is. And they will then say that this history is written by the Pujari. 
Well, the Pujari is there. They have, you know, they always have been there. They always will be there. There will be always somebody who will be waiting to take advantage of you in many, many ways possible. Yeah? Yep. But it's amazing how it's made out that the elements of Sikh history they don't agree with is suddenly a false infiltration when that's not the case. Hmm. I've heard quite a few examples here. You're right. Right. So, basically, how many people today here will tell their kids to make a similar sacrifice? Not even one. But how many do you think will virtue signal? Uh, at least 30-40%. Because that's the, that's, the, that's the easiest thing to do. The rest are too busy working. But straight away, you can see that the virtue signaling is strong, but not the desire to live like that. I once uh, went to a funeral, yeah? So, of course, you have, you have to go and uh, meet the family and say a few words, yeah? Yep. But the guy's wife was justifying the death of her father-in-law by using Gurbani. Right. What was she saying? Is that every soul has to pass through it, or he lived his life, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, you, your father suffered a heart attack, and he passed away. You need to accept it. It's hard to accept it, but a death is a death. He has right. passed away. Now, now you take your responsibilities and uh, live your life in a, you know, in, in, a, in, in a good way. Right. They had the justification ready. Why he died? Because Gurbani says so. Right. So, how, like, so don't you think that's a bit of a hypocrisy just to say that, you know, to deny that Gurbani mentions the truth that we're all going to die anyway one day. Well, it is it is in that way, but I think people are too comfortable living that life. I'm not personally responsible for anything. All of this is part of a big plan. It's it's almost like a cop out that you don't want to take that decision like they did to stand up for yourself. No, man, you, as I said, you've got way too much to lose. I, yep. I live in UP, yeah? Yep. There are people here, and they have exclusively told me that they're never, ever going back to Punjab under any circumstances. They simply have too much to lose. Right. And will these be the same ones who support Khalistan? No, man, they will probably the people who'll be shooting them. Right. So, basically, we are talking a case of stolen valor, that they want all the credit, but don't want to put in the hard work. The hard work has already been put by, the, uh, by our ancestors, so I totally exist just to enjoy my life. How selfish is that? Oh, man, I don't know, man, sorry. My sarcasm meter is going off the grid. 
No, no, no. I mean, I understand what you're saying, but I'm just saying how selfish is the uh, notion that we, you know, live to have no responsibility because someone before us had the responsibility. That, that's a very common belief, actually. Right. You say, my, my ancestors worked really hard, and therefore I'm living a comfortable life. So thanks to them. Okay, so it's easy to say thanks to them, right? I agree with that. Thanks to them. But is saying thanks to them enough or is living like they wanted you to live enough? What's the difference between free and feral? You tell me. Free people have responsibilities. Ferals don't. Right. Freedom isn't responsibility. Yeah. Your responsibilities actually come before your rights. Hmm. And today we don't have that concept, do we? Uh, the way I see it, our clergy has invented ways of living a comfortable life while still claiming that we are following Sikhi. And to point out the internal thing down here is that it's a comfortable life without responsibility. As I said many times before, nothing ruins a civilization more than prosperity. Right. Do you remember when uh, Baghdad was sacked in 1258? Yes. Uh, I think it was Hulaku Khan, the Mongol. I believe so. Yeah. So inside, when they you know, sacked the entire town, you, you had silk, you had diamonds, you had gold, every single precious things. And nobody dared to fight back like they needed to. Because they simply had too much loot. Their lives were too comfortable. The exact same thing happened in Rome when the barbarians just walked in. Right. And you look at our ancestors, you look at our forebears like the Saibjadis, they had comfortable lives, but they were more than willing to throw that away. Yeah. Do you think we can regain the spirit? It will take a long time. It will take at least a few generations or or a massive loss. The equivalent would be the Holocaust for the Jewish people. Before we regain that warrior spirit? Not just warrior spirit. It's a reawakening. Right. Yeah, the Jews said, never again. You would think that after Chamkor, we would say never again, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Well, some of us might have said that. Then uh, you know, we had really, really hard times, and Baba Bandosing Badr came in afterwards, and then we have even had our heads sold. Then we had the missile period and everything. So, yeah, eventually we did arrive at a situation that we became the masters of the land. But uh, unfortunately, that 
times changed and uh, yeah that ended okay so just out of interest what do you think changed where did we go wrong from producing you know warriors who fought alongside the side judges and emulated their example we went to the contrary track what went wrong there is a saying that empires are founded by lions and run by uh they say foxes or hyenas yep so the hard work needed is done you you right. were not born into comfort your son was your son will never know what you went through right there will be no appreciation it's the same circle you know hard times create strong men strong men create hard uh, good times good times create weak men weak men create bad times or you know hard times it, it's that same circle hmm. can you if hear the Marxist screaming uh man no uh, no i know i use earphones man i can't hear anybody hmm. right but moving on you were saying okay if if uh, a child is born into let's say a well off family today hmm. and they grow up as a teenager in that well off family with all the com- comforts of life never had to work a single hard day in their life never had to suffer they don't yeah. know what the word no means because everything was provided to them yep the feeling of helplessness is alien to them Do you think those people will survive even no. a week in in a situation where they are out of options? No. No. It reminds me no. of the French Revolution when the the French peasants went to the queen and say, "Well, no, we are no, we have no food." They say, "Why don't you just eat cake?" <laughs> and before someone says that leaping on the ground and nurses us and makes us strong basically that's virtue signaling because is it making our spirit strong if you're introducing your kids to seek history through these shenanigans sorry to use to use the word yep how strong of of a seek would they become Nope, there will be the pai chara langar balti types are they going to remember panje pasha shahidi by sitting on a hot plate <laughs> never why well, won't they do that because really if you come to think about it that spirit won't be there would it so when it really does come to sitting on the hot plate they will be the first ones to flee if 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 we really think about uh, sabdar's story those final days walking through the cold water was the least uncomfortable thing that happened to them pretty much i agree we have our, our farmers when they water their crops in the winter they're walking through the cold water anyhow There are still are people who you know take a bath or take a shower with cold water even in the winters. For them, it's habitual. Yep. 
But I do, uh, I do think there, there's no shortage of people who actually feel close to the Guru Sahib or Sahib by doing this. But because they don't know better, unfortunately. But when it really comes to the count to put the mouth where the to put the money where the mouth is, they can talk the talk but not walk the walk. No, that's hard, man. It's almost like um, you know, when kids are younger, especially boys, they find out about special forces. They go home and do ten press ups every night, right? Every boy has that phase. And we were like that until we had that little military course. And, you know, after a four-hour walk through the mountains, 20-minute run, no food, no water, even one press-up was hard, but they expected a hundred. Do you think they, they won the week? And that's when you actually saw like 80% of the class dropout and mind you this wasn't a full military you know session this was just like an introductory course and you also had to remember what you saw on the way yep and my point is that you know when it really comes to that that's when your spirit is under test and that's when we really find out how strong you are and whether those 10 press-ups at home with a nice bed waiting for you count or they don't. I have some relatives and uh, they, you know, they are big supporters of the, yeah, 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 we must fight for our rights. And I was like, okay, when there was time to fight, you ran away to the UK? <laughs> Man, you use fake passports. I don't know how many countries you, you illegally crossed and now you're living a comfortable life in the UK. Suddenly, you're reminded, oh, we have to fight for our rights. And it was time to fight. You ran away. Mm-hmm. I think uh, in America it's called a chicken hawk. Yes, yes, chicken hawks. Yeah. So, what would you say is the moral lesson of this episode? Man, I think you can define it better than me. It's not about the virtue signaling, but the spirit. Remembering them, of course, we remember them. Not just for these six days, for every single day of the year, we remember them. But uh, to understand why they did what they did, to envision that and keep that in mind and keep working towards it will be the ultimate tribute to them. Exactly. And then when the time comes for you to stand up and show that same spirit, do it. Nah, man, that's hard, eh? Well, you know, I would say that hardship might be quite a related word. No, for for most people, they're near near impossible. Okay, sorry. Something controversial. If I am, let's say, an Indian Army soldier, yep. I am somewhere in Kashmir, let's say, hmm. and it's, uh, let's say it's 1965, 
I'm heavily injured. I'm captured. Mm. The Pakistanis, they, they see me and they just, just shoot me. Yep. Did I was I murdered? How would you answer that? That's a question for you and for the listeners. The army, the army is going to tell me, tell my family that uh, this brave soldier of ours, you know, he, he battled very bravely, then he fell in the battlefield. <clears throat> right. But how do you how do you differentiate between a murder and sacrifice? What do you say sacrifice is the acceptance of the cost, which is usually murder? No, when I put put on the uniform, I knew that in, I could die in the battlefield. Hmm. If, if some postal worker is shot and killed, that'd be out of the ordinary. You understand that this is what soldiers do. That's why they have rifles. Right. And it's the same with their, you know, four beers. They accepted the cost of the path they trod. My point is, for this, this, this last question I asked you, that not every death is a shahidi. Right. So when you say not every death is a shahidi, what do you mean? If I am an unfortunate Yazidi who has been captured by ISIS, I have no option. They are going to kill me anyhow. Yep. It's not it's not my chance, my choice over there to sacrifice myself. The choice you have is to accept your circumstances. That's the only choice I have. Yep, and that's your sacrifice. Yeah, well, kind of, yeah. So then sacrifice can be redefined as something done from a position of power rather than any fatal element. So when the Sabjaras had an option to convert to Islam and live a very luxurious life, they chose not to. Right, and that was their sacrifice. It momentarily... Well, we shouldn't say it like that, but different. Any individual could, let's say, use the opportunity to escape hmm. and then, you know, do what they wanted to do originally. Right. So when you have the option to sacrifice, I think. Hmm. So it's from a position of power rather than a position of fatality. Kind of, you could you could say that. Right. So when they, so, when they ask the Sabjaras, what, what will you do when you, if, if we release you? They say, well, we'll organize a Sikhs back again, yeah? Yep. They simply could say, no, we'll just, just do Pagati and you know, go into the hills. Hmm. No. 
They never said that. They never said that. And it goes to show at the end of the day that they were quite conversant with reality. For a 10-year-old to debate a Kazi and defeat and him not, and defeat him and defeat him decisively that, that they walked out. Yep. How great were they? The Kazi who has got decades of experience and then we have our Saibs that are just 10 years old. Amazing, isn't it? Well, beyond amazing, beyond description. And you look at the two elder ones, even the younger ones, when they were asked what they would do if they were liberated, they said they would go collect forces, mature, and, you know, smash Aurangzeb's face. That, you know, ability to see that, you know, for the greater good, they need to pick up arms. That's just amazing. I do believe that there were some wise people in the Mughal court because they have to be because they were the rulers, yeah? Yep. Can you imagine their minds there's okay, our time's up? Mm -hmm. And this reminds me that this Sikh figure on Twitter put up that we need to raise Qatar Jangi Surmis and all the non-Sikhs, the Sikh liberals, works and Dilsavs had a problem with it because in reality... The Saib Jadis were Qatar Jangi Surme, but having kids like that scares everyone today because they know they're hypocrites. They're hypocrites themselves. Yeah, uh, it all, you know, again comes back to comfort. Lives are way too comfortable. Too comfortable. And if someone says they want to raise children like Saib Jadis, it has happened in the past. People have raised their children to be like them. We can't do that today because we are not perfect Gursiks <clears throat> ourselves. Not just perfect, not even close, man. I mean, I've there is a Gursik. There is a Gursik. Yep. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, yep. I've seen people who took because say that now next, next life is secured. On on service, they look like very good Sikhs. They do they do their net name, they, they do their past and everything. So, oh, you know, they're good Sikhs. But the very reasoning why they are Amritari baptized is flawed. Yep. And if you look at it, Gursik children have a Gursik father and a Gursik mother. Not a uh, Gursik father. Not mother Gursik is more important. Pardon? Mother is more important. Yep. Not a Gursik father and a Gursik father or a Gursik mother and a Gursik father who identifies as a mother. Nothing like that crap. Well, yeah. Sikh father, Sikh mother. But mother has more influence. Let's say that. Let's put it this way. Yeah. Mother is biologically a woman and not because, you know, a man feels he's a woman. I have a brutal joke, but I can't tell it. I'll probably get shot for it. But yeah, I'll tell you later. It's a, it's a serious episode, yeah. Yep. Anyhow, if you want to be like the Saib Jadis, we need to live like them. At least start by learning who they were. Yep, and keeping case. Yeah.
you always start from the basics and build up even if there are failures along the way keep going well it doesn't matter how many failures you have the the only thing that matters is you don't give up mm-hmm. you keep the continuity of that spirit yep what else can we say Oh, we can see a lot of things, but uh, I think for today we have made up a point. And it's a point that needs to be uh, repeated over and over again, that the spirit needs to be preserved rather than the virtue signaling. Well, it's it's easier. Hmm. To expect people to be responsible is a fatal mistake. Right. That's how I drive on the road. Mm. Never had an accident. Mm-hmm. And if you have the responsibility to be a Sikh, you will die with responsibility, but you won't relinquish it. Yeah. Well, that's all for today. Thank you for joining us. Wahiguruji ka khalsa, Wahiguruji ki fatah.